This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for this class is provided by Benjamin Arieh and family in loving memory of Raphael, son of Chacham Rabbi Chia. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg The Torah and the mitzvot are are God himself, because the mitzvot is God's will, and the Torah is God's wisdom, and God and his wisdom are one. So, when a Jew studies Torah, when you think words of Torah, and you speak words of Torah, and you do mitzvot, you are actually connecting with the essence of God. And now he continues on top of page 81. However, a question presents itself. How can it be said that in an understanding Torah one comprehends God's wisdom and will when God's wisdom, like himself, like God himself, is infinitely beyond man's limited comprehension? How can you say that man's mind, that we can grasp, we can comprehend God? By thinking words of Torah, we grasp God himself. How is it possible for a finite human mind, a finite human being, to be able to comprehend God's wisdom, God's will and wisdom. Although the Holy One, blessed be He, is called Ein Sof, infinite, and His greatness can never be fathomed, and no thought can apprehend Him at all, and so are also His will and His wisdom, infinite and unfathomable. As it is written, there is no searching of His understanding, and it is also written, when you will search to understand God, you will, will you find. And it's further written, for my thoughts are not like your thoughts, said God to man. Verse says there's no comparison between man and God. The truth is, even God's speech, there's no comparison between man's speech and God's speech. Because when we speak, nothing happens. When God speaks, he creates a world. God speaks, and the world came into being. But how much more so there's no connection, there's no comparison to God's thoughts and our thoughts, divine thought, let alone God's understanding um, as he says if you will search out will you find God so there's no connection there's no parallel because just like we cannot grasp understand the infinite we can't wrap our mind around the idea of the infinite because we are finite you can't understand something that you don't have like a blind person trying to understand the uh, sense of sight if you don't have it in you you simply can't you can't possibly understand it so Two, you, just like we can't understand the infinite, so too we cannot understand God's thoughts or God's understanding or comprehension. So how is it possible for a human being, by studying Torah, to grasp God's minds and God's thoughts and God's understanding? If he is infinite and his mind is infinite. Thus, human thought is incapable of grasping divine thought. How then can it be said that in understanding Torah, man grasps God's wisdom? To this, the Alter Rebbe answers that God compressed and lowered his wisdom, clothing it in the physical terms and objects of Torah and in its commandments, so that it might be accessible to human intelligence in 
order that man may thereby be united with God. Concerning this disparity between human intelligence and divine wisdom, our sages have said, where you find the greatness of the Holy One, blessed be he, there you find his humility. How can we approach God's greatness to find it and be united with it? Through his humility, by his lowering himself to our level. He so. says that where you find God's greatness, how can you find God's greatness? If you're looking for God's greatness, which refers to God being infinite. How can we find God's infinite? How can we connect with God's infinite? And the answer is through his humility. That God in his humility enabled us to grasp his greatness. What is the idea of humility? When a person is humble, he makes himself approachable, available, accessible. So when you speak of God's humility, is God made himself available. God made himself accessible. He speaks to us. Despite the fact that he's so removed from us and so remote and so infinitely greater, nevertheless, God wants to speak to us. He wants to have a relationship with us. And he wants to speak to us on our level. He doesn't overwhelm us with his presence. He doesn't... Um, but he finds a way to speak to us, to communicate with us. So that's the, that as a result of God's uh, humility, God made himself, his greatness, available to us. How is that? God right. compressed his will and wisdom in the 613 commandments of the Torah and in their laws. As mentioned above, the logic of the law represents divine wisdom and the ruling divine will. So he uses the same expression we find in the Talmud. He says that God tempts him. He concentrated his shechina, his presence, between the poles of the ark. Tzimtzim shechinase ben bade That God concentrated his infinite presence between the poles of the ark and the Holy of Holies. God's presence is found in the Holy of Holies. So just like in the sense of Adir, he uses the word tzimtzim. Tzimtzim doesn't mean that he shrunk or he lessened or he concealed on the contrary. Timson means he concentrated. His entire essence he concentrated and revealed between the two poles of the ark in the Holy of Holies and from there he communicated with Moshe. He spoke through Moshe. That's where the prophets, prophecy emanates from the Holy of Holies. So it's not a hiding, a concealing, on the contrary. It's, it's a re revelation. God reveals himself but he concentrates he concentrates himself and reveals his entire essence concentrates his infinite essence through this limited space the two poles of the holy ark so so too God concentrated his entire greatness his infinite essence and he concentrated and he revealed it through the 613 mitzvot so it's not like God hid and concealed and but God himself concentrated his own essence his own being just like when the person is humble the person is modest he himself is modest he himself makes himself available and accessible so too God himself in his infinite essence retaining his infinite essence concentrates himself and enables us makes himself available and accessible to us how? through Torah mitzvah Torah deals with realities that we can relate to 
the laws of the Torah all deal with physical reality, so we can relate to them. So when you grasp an idea in Torah, a law in Torah, a concept in Torah, you are re- literally grasping God. God concentrates himself and makes himself available. You know, that's the difference between Torah and um, all other wisdom, science, math. Those wisdoms are limited, are finite, are human. But the Torah is divine. That God's infinite divine essence concentrates himself and reveals himself through Torah, through mitzvah. In the letter combinations of scripture, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, the very letters and words of scripture contain Hashem's will and wisdom. Wherefore, even one who is ignorant of their meaning fulfills the precept of Torah, study, by merely reciting it. So he's not, he's not talking about learning the Torah, using the words of the Torah. He's talking about the writing, the writing of the letters. You know, a scribe, a sofer, writes a letter. Every letter in the Torah is holy. The Torah scroll is holy. When a Jew is called up to the Torah, even if he doesn't understand the meaning of the Torah, he makes a blessing over the Torah. Because you fulfill the mitzvah of studying Torah just by reading the written word in the written Torah, even if you don't understand a word. Because what you're doing is something divine, is something holy. The letters themselves mean to have holiness to them. The Torah scroll is holy. You have to treat it with respect and with holiness. So he's saying that the infinite essence of God, God concentrated his infinite essence, not just in a spiritual sense, an idea, and a concept, but even down to the physical sense. The physical letter written on parchment and, and with, with ink. That physical letter is holy. That physical parchment becomes holy. So God's infinite essence has come down and concentrated himself and is found in that physical uh, presence. Hashem's will and wisdom are also contained in the exposition of these verses found in the Agadat, Midrashim of our sages of blessed memory. In all of these did Hashem compress his will and wisdom in order that every neshama or even the lower soul levels of Ruach and Nefesh, situated as they are in the human body, will be able to grasp them with its intellect. So the, the Torah um, is on a level that our conscious selves could relate to it, our mind, our heart. It talks about realities that we can relate to. They all deal with realities that are limited and defined by time and space, and whether it's the laws of the holidays or the laws of uh, the landlord-tenant, or whether it's the laws, agricultural laws, or whether the laws of the holy, holy sacrifices in the temple or the building of the temple or the laws of purity, but they all deal with physical realities reality that our conscious minds could relate to. So by studying Torah on a level that we can relate to, we connect with the essence of God. And in order that it, the nefesh, or ruach, or neshama, fulfill them, as far as they can be fulfilled in action, speech, and thought, thereby clothing itself with all its ten faculties in these three garments of the thought, speech, and action of Torah and Mitra. So the intellects, the intellectual capacity of the soul is fully engaged in the thought of Torah, studying of Torah. The uh, emotional capacity of the soul is fully gripped and engaged in the fulfillment of the mitzvot. As we learned earlier, the mitzvot are done with passion, with enthusiasm, with excitement. And so the, they're, they're totally find themselves in the clothes, just like when you wear clothes, the person is in the clothes, so too... When the soul expresses itself through Torah and mitzvot, the soul finds itself exp- fully engaged in, in the mitzvah. That the, the, the emotion, the passion, the heart is fully engaged in the mitzvah. And also in the speech and, a- speech and action. So the entire soul, all its ten faculties, conscious faculties, 
and with the three expressions, thought, speech, and action, are fully engaged in the garments in, of the Torah and the mitzvot. Therefore, has the Torah been compared to water, but just as water descends from a higher level to a lower level? The Torah is compared in many places to water. In the Talmud, actually a few reasons. The quality of water is that when you take water from one place to the other place, let's say from the reservoir, you take water from a, re- a reservoir, and you take it from one place to the other, the actual water that's in this place comes to the other place. In other words, it's not like, not like the light of the sun. When the sun gives off light, the sun doesn't really move. The sun doesn't really budge. The sun remains in its place in heaven. But the sun emits, emanates a ray of light. But the sun is not changed, and the sun is not affected. The sun remains in its own place. Um, the same is when a teacher teaches a student. The, although, just like the sun reaches from high, and the sun, the lights of the sun reaches to, you know, to a far, far place, but nevertheless, it's not the sun itself that reaches the far place. It's the ray, a ray of the sun, a light of the sun. The same is with a teacher. When a teacher teaches a student, so the teacher's mind is lowering itself and is reaching and communicating to someone on a much lower level. But nevertheless, you can't compare the two levels of understanding. It's not like the teacher's essence, his essential understanding, the way he understands things is actually reached and connected with the student. It's a ray, it's a glimmer, it's a, something rubs off the teacher and he's able to communicate it with the student. But of course, it's not the same level. But water is not so. Water, by nature, water will find the lowest spot. Water will always find the lowest spot. It seeks out the lowest spot. But when the water seeks out the lowest spot, it's the same water. The same water that was up above will find itself and will reach the bottom. And that's why the Torah is compared to water. When a Jew studies Torah, you're not just studying Torah that comes from heaven, that emanated from heaven. It's like a ray, a glimmer. But the Torah, the way it was in heaven, actually, heaven came down to earth. The Torah came down into this world. It's that very same Torah. The way it was in heaven actually comes down into this world. So when, you, when a Jew studies Torah in this world, whether it's a piece of Talmud, or whether it's a piece of Rashi, a Chumash, it's not like God on his own studies Torah and God's wisdom is one thing. And then God gives us a ray, a glimmer, some, some illumination from his Torah. No. The very same Torah, God's own Torah, the way God studies Torah on his own, God's own Torah, his own mind, his own divine wisdom, his own divine will, that very same Torah, that very same essence comes down into this world and encloses itself and expresses itself in the Torah that was given to us in the physical world, down to the physical letters of the Torah scroll. That that very same holiness and the same very same divinity and the very same infinite Torah is found, comes down in this world. So God gave us His own Torah. When a teacher teaches the student, the teacher is not giving his own essence because the student can't really grasp the teacher's essence. There's a, there's a grand canyon between the teacher and the student. So you can give a glimmer, a ray, an understanding, an idea, a concept, 
but, but it's not the same. It comes down to a much lower level. When the sun gives off light, the sun also doesn't reach. The sun itself doesn't reach the earth. It's a glimmer of the sun that reaches earth. When God gave us his Torah, he gave us himself. He gave us his very self, his very essence, his, very, his own divine will and wisdom. And God and his wisdom are one and inseparable at the same. That very same wisdom came down into this world. When a Jew studies Torah, you're grasping God himself. Not a rimmer, not a glimmer, not a ray, but God's essence, God's mind himself. So when your mind is grasping a passage of the Talmud or a passage of Torah, any portion of the Torah, you're not just grasping a human concept. You're not just grasping a finite, a limited concept. But you're truly grasping the infinite. You're truly grasping God's essence. That's the miracle of Torah. That's why a Jew gets excited. Every time a Jew studies Torah, you get excited. Because you're truly grasping the ingraspable, the ungraspable, you're grasping the infinite, the divine essence. Water which reaches the lower level is the same water that left its source within the higher level. Unlike light, for example, which also travels from its source, but in whose case it is not the source, the luminous body itself that is transmitted, but only a ray of it. And unlike intellect, which can also be communicated from one person to another, but in whose case, too, it is not the source, the teacher's mind itself, that transmits itself to the lower level, the student's mind, but only the idea, a product of the source. Just as we find in the analogy of water, so has Torah descended from its place of glory, i.e. the lofty spiritual plane which is its source. In its original state, it is Hashem's will and wisdom, and Torah is one and the same with Hashem, whom no thought can apprehend at all on that plane. Torah is incomprehensible to man, as is Hashem himself. From there, the Torah has journeyed in a descent through hidden stages, stage after stage, in the Hishtal Shalut of the worlds, i.e. the chain-like order of interconnected spiritual worlds, explained more fully in chapter 2, Torah descended through all these levels, until it clothed itself in material matters and things of this corporeal world, which comprised nearly all the Torah's commandments and their laws. Nearly all the mitzvot involved material objects, tzitzit are made of wool, the filament of leather, and so on. Even the spiritual mitzvot involve material objects in their halakha, the laws governing their practical application. For example, the mitzvah of loving one's fellow, although essentially a spiritual mitzvah, as it consists of an emotion, love, demands that one aid his fellow Jew materially, financially, etc. These being concrete, material expressions of a spiritual mitzvah. The truth is, all of the mitzvot, all 613 mitzvot, even not only the majority that are obviously physical, you have to shake the lulav and the esrog, and you have to drink the wine, and you have to eat the matzah, you have to give the tzedakah, they're all obviously material and practical, but even the mitzvot that seemingly are spiritual, for example, the mitzvot to love God, seemingly, there's a mitzvah, one of the 613 mitzvot, you have to love God. So you would think it's a spiritual mitzvah, but the truth is that even that mitzvah really, in order to fulfill the mitzvah, has to be physical. What does it mean? Just like the mitzvah putting on tefillin, it has to, it has to be on your head and you have to feel it on your arm, so too the love of God has to be palpable. And the equivalent 
would be the love of your best friend. Imagine. Imagine you walk down the street. You have a terrible day. Nothing is going right. It's your worst day. It's a Monday. Everything is going wrong. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, you meet your best friend, bumps into you. Unexpected. You don't know he's in town. What a surprise. Your heart suddenly... It's like, a, it's like a chest, a load off your chest. You feel great. You smile inside. You, you, all your tzaras are forgotten. It's like a cloud is lifted. You can physically feel the difference. You physically change inside. Before you were all cramped and, 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 and hurting and, and pain and uh, worried and anxious. And all of a sudden, you have this unexpected surprise. Your friend, your best friend, and you suddenly feel great. It's physical. It's tangible. You can feel the difference. That, that's the, and that same level, that's how a Jew has to love God. When you love God, it's not just abstract. Loving God has to be palpable, physical. That it makes you feel good. The fact that you go of God and that God is your best friend. The fact that you've just encountered God in Davening. And you feel a love and you feel that relationship and you feel that connection. It elevates your spirit. It inspires you. You feel good. You feel confident. You feel trusting. You go forward confident, cheerfully and confidently because Hashem is with you. So you have not fulfilled the mitzvah of love God until it actually impacts your physical heart. It's physical. It's tangible. It's in your kishkis. It's not just abstract. I love God. But you feel it. Just like a physical love bumped into your best friend, you... It, it would, you would physically change. Your whole mood would change. So too, the love of God also has to change you and elevate you. You'll never forget, you know, the Rebbe's yard set is coming up next week. By the way, this Friday night we're having a dinner in honor of the Rebbe's yard set, 12th yard set. Um, but after the Rebbe, after, after davening, it was amazing. Like you'd watch the Rebbe walk out of shul after davening. It was like refreshed. It was like... <laughs> Like he walked into shul slower and he came out of shul, he was like bouncing, excited. Like davening was like an encounter, like an experience. Like he just met Hashem and re- refreshed that love and that relationship and that connection. And you can see it in him physically. It was like a, a changed person. It was like all refreshed, all invigorated, excited, and ready to take on the world, whatever. So the mitzvah of love, even those spiritual mitzvahs, also have to have a physical impact. Because all of the Torah and mitzvot were given in this physical world and were meant to have a physical. When do you fulfill Hashem's will? When have you fulfilled the mitzvah only if it impacts this physical world? When it reaches the physical. The physical letters in the Torah, the physical mitzvah, the deed, the physical dollar bill that you give to tzedakah, and even the mitzvah of loving God, it also has to physically affect you. The truth is, even the mitzvah of knowing, studying Torah. Studying Torah actually affects your brain you know modern science has actually affirmed it that even to a later age whenever you learn you're learning something it etches it makes an etch in your brain it physically etches your brain which enables your brain to receive more wisdom the more you learn the more you study the more you use your brain if you don't use it you lose it but the more you use your brain it actually etches makes an etch in the brain and enables the brain to receive more wisdom from the soul. Therefore, as time goes on and the more you use your brain, 
the more you're able to understand, you're able to grasp deeper concepts and more complex, complex ideas. So it has a physical impact. It's not just spiritual. So the mitzvah of studying Torah also has to have a physical, physical impact. So the Torah comes down through many, many layers, many, many levels, spiritual levels, till it reaches the physical, the tangible. The Torah as it was given to us, the physical Torah that deals with physical, tangible things. But it's all the same Torah. It's all the same Torah. It's like water. It's not like a different Torah. It's not like God is giving us something else. God in this Torah remains in heaven. And the Torah is a ray, a glimmer, uh, an illumination. Torah is that very same essence, that very same substance, that very same water reaches the bottom. The same water that was on top reaches the bottom. The same Torah that was in the high, high of highs in heaven, that very same Torah comes down into this world. God himself is learning and his will and his wisdom come into the physical, physical Torah mitzvah. Thus the Torah clothed itself in the material objects with which the mitzvah are performed and also in the physical letter combinations written with ink in a book, namely the 24 books of Torah and the Vim and the Tuvim. As mentioned above, the letters and words contain the holiness of Hashem's will and wisdom. The actual letters themselves, the actual physical words written by the scribe in the Torah scroll, the physical letter contains the divinity of God, the infinite essence of God. For underwent the descent, so that every human thought be able to grasp them, and so that even speech and action, which are on a level lower than thought, be able to grasp them, God's will and wisdom, and clothe themselves in them by performing the commandments in speech and action. So God enabled us, out of His love for us, God enabled us to be able to grasp Him. Since we are physical beings and it's easy for us to grasp thoughts, we can speak, we can act. So God gave us 613 opportunities to really grasp it by way which is accessible to us. We cannot grasp infinite. We cannot grasp the divine because we're not divine and we're not infinite. But we could grasp, sorry, something finite, thought, speech, and action. But by grasping the Torah and mitzvot which were given to us in the physical world, we actually grasp the essence of God. Now since Torah and its commandments clothe all ten faculties of the soul and all of the soul's 613 organs from head to foot, i.e. from its highest level, its head, to its lowest level, yet the soul is truly completely bound up with God in the bond of life, and the very light of God envelops and clothes it from head to foot. It's through the 613 mitzvah, through the thought, speech, and action, that the soul is able to bond and to connect with the infinite. Because the soul, especially the conscious level of the soul, is finite. So the soul has no way of grasping God. Even with the higher faculties of the soul, through meditation, through philosophy, through love, the soul cannot connect with the essence of God. There's only one way for the soul to connect with the essence of God through mitzvah through studying Torah and doing mitzvah which is what's unique about Judaism versus all other religions and all other mysticism because Judaism understands the inherent limitation of religion and mysticism and spirituality because spirituality doesn't, act, doesn't give you access to God 
God is neither spiritual, God is neither physical. Just like the uh, hand cannot grasp God, neither could the mind grasp God. Neither could the soul grasp God. Neither could the angel grasp God. The highest level of consciousness, the most mind-boggling, mind-blowing human experience, the greatest ecstasy, the most sublime, heavenly music experience, cannot grasp God. We simply do not have what it takes. We don't have the tools, because ultimately we're all finite, including spirituality. The only way for us to grasp the infinite, to grasp God, is only one way. And that is, God enabled us to grasp Him. God concentrated Himself. Because God in His infinite capacity, in His modesty, God has the ability to concentrate His infinite essence in something finite. Just like God has the ability to concentrate the Shekhinah between the two poles of the, of the Ark, the Holy Ark and the Holy of Holies, and His entire essence is concentrated in that space. So God has the ability to concentrate His infinite essence within the Torah and the mitzvah. The entire Torah as it was given to us to be grasped and comprehended through physical mind, through logical mind, and, and to be grasped and comprehended through action, thought, speech, and action, to fulfilling all the mitzvah. So God enabled us to grasp His very essence. And it's only when the soul, when the soul expresses itself through, puts on these clothes, so to speak, that the soul is enveloped, the soul is elevated, the soul is enveloped by the infinite light. So if the soul wants to be elevated, the soul has to go down. The soul has to come down. The soul has to get into the nitty-gritty. The soul has to do the mitzvah, to so roll up its sleeve and do the mitzvah, live in this world and express itself, express and fulfill the 613 mitzvah. That's the only path for the soul to connect with the essence of God. If a soul divorces himself from mitzvot and focuses and concentrates and meditates, and the soul is really severing himself from any possible connection with God. So the, so the person who spends his life on the mountaintop, sitting and meditating, is actually distancing himself from God. It's a dead end. The only way for the soul to connect with God is for the soul to roll up its sleeve and to put on the clothes to express itself through living a Jewish lifestyle, through Torah and mitzvot, thought, speech, and action, fulfilling all 613 mitzvot. Eating the matzah, lighting the candle, and giving the tzedakah, and leading a Jewish lifestyle, studying Torah, and praying. And all of these things are very physical, very practical. Very doable, very simple. The same way that Hashem humbled himself, the soul has to humble itself. Right, right. But the soul, when, when the soul humbles itself, the soul is elevated. It's elevated by the experience. And this is this is this is an entirely different perspective than the classical conventional understanding of Judaism which is that the important thing is the spiritual the important thing is the world to come as we'll come to in a minute and this world is merely uh, a uh, yeah, right the antechamber is just a preparation for the ultimate which is the world to come 
spiritual world, spiritual realm. But what he's explaining here is just the reverse. The soul waits thousands of years just to be able to be born, just to be able to come into this world. Because only in this world that we have an opportunity that the soul could never have in heaven. The soul could be in heaven for thousands of years and have the most ultimately sublime experiences, heavenly experiences. And yet the soul yearns and waits, can't wait for the moment that it comes into this world and has the opportunity to do a mitzvah. Has the opportunity, by doing the simplest mitzvah, you can connect with the essence of God. Something that's not afforded to the soul while it's in heaven. So the soul, he's saying, is elevated. When the soul is fully engaged, puts on the clothes, thought, speech, and action of 613 mitzvah. The mind of the soul is fully engaged in studying Torah. And the heart of the soul is fully engaged in speech and action of the mitzvah, that the mitzvah is done with love and passion and awe, then the soul is bound up with God and the light of God envelops the soul from head to foot. So it is written, God is my rock in whom I take refuge. Naturally, only that which surrounds the person can protect him. And it is further written, as with the shield, God's will surrounds him. So what does it mean, God is my rock, God shields me, God surrounds me? How do you get God to surround you, to shield you? Through Torah mitzvah. When you study Torah and you do mitzvah, the mitzvah envelops you. It's like God hugging you, like God embracing you. So God's infinite light is embracing you and hugging you from head to toe. Meaning is will and wisdom that are proved in Torah and its commandments. We see at any rate that although God's wisdom and will beyond man's reach, they are made accessible to him because the Torah is clothed in physical terms and its commandments are vested in physical objects. For this reason it has been said, one hour of repentance and good deeds in this world is better than the whole life of the world. So firstly, we have a contradiction because it says in the very same Ethics of Our Fathers, this is a quote from Ethics of Our Fathers, it says that one moment in the world to come is worth more than all of the pleasures of this world put together. So make up your mind. One moment in this world is worth more than the whole world to come together or uh, is one moment in the world to come one moment in this world worth more than, or one moment in the world to come is worth more than this whole world so the question is it's a contradiction which one is it is this world superior to the world to come or is the world to come superior to this world as it says elsewhere in ethics of our fathers that, that this world is just an antechamber for the world to come so what's the whole purpose you meet many Jews and that's their approach to life their attitude to life is that this world is just temporary place. This world is just a temporary place and the ultimate goal is the world to come. Everything they do in life is motivated by, by the idea of the world to come. That they're living this world and making all their sacrifices because of their eternal reward in the world to come and life after death. So which one is it? Now, there's an interesting discussion. Firstly, it's interesting to note in the Torah, the world to come is not even mentioned. The afterlife is not even mentioned. The Torah doesn't even speak about the afterlife. The Torah only speaks about this world and the reward in this world. If you follow the Torah and mitzvah, God will reward you. You'll get, you'll get your, your money in time and your, you'll be able, your crop will come in in time, etc. You'll get all the blessings, receive all the blessings. There's no, no word, no mention of the world to come. 
Now, there's a classical argument between Maimonides and Nachmanides in the Kabbalists. Maimonides is of the opinion, when we speak of the world to come, which is the ultimate reward? What is the ultimate reward? At the end of the day, when after everything is said and done, what is the eternal reward? What is the ultimate reward for Torah, for mitzvah, for the soul? A- anyone? What? To be? Okay, but is it, is it Ganeden? Is it what we call Ganeden? Afterlife? When the soul leaves the body, leaves the world, and the soul connects with, you know, the soul goes to heaven? Or is it what we call Tchiyat HaMesim? Resurrection. When the soul will be reunited with its body, and the soul will be resurrected, the body will be resurrected. Is that the ultimate reward? What is the ultimate reward? This is a classical argument. No, 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 not coming of Mashiach. No one, no, one, no one holds that the coming of Mashiach is the ultimate reward. Mashiach is a reward. The question is, what is the ultimate reward? After the coming of Mashiach, there'll be the resurrection of the dead. What happens after the resurrection of the Dharma? What happens after the resurrection of the dead? Will the soul remain in this world? Or will the soul move on? It's eternal reward, the world to come. What would you think? What do you think? Yeah, where? In yeah. this world, in this world, or in the world to come, or, or in the heaven? With a body, without a body. With a body. But instead, in heaven, the body will, will have changed. There'll be there'll be a, 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 a revelation of Hashem in this world, total revelation. Okay, so you say in this world, because the body will be able to. Absorb Hashem. You say you agree. agree. Also, in this world. Yeah. What is the world to come? That's the argument. The world to come mean a disembodied soul, soul in heaven, or is the world to come referring to this world, our world? We know the answer to this. We'll get to it in a minute. (laughs) You say our world. What? Originally, was created to be this world. That was the original. Okay. The reward is the Torah. What do you say? What do you think? <laughs> this world. Why? Why in this world? Is everything you've been saying? Okay. 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 Very good. What do you think? Next world. Next world in heaven. I think it's both. That's a safe answer. But if the Torah is already in this world, and Torah is the ultimate, it's God's wisdom, then we already have the, we have what God wants us to have right now, to take advantage of to explore that to its fullest would be the ultimate reward. What else is there besides the Torah and God? You have the answer, or you're just giving us a torture? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a classical argument between Maimonides and Nachmanides. Maimonides believes whenever the Torah Talmud refers to Olam Haba, the ultimate, the ultimate reward, the world to come. It's referring to the soul in heaven. Not this world. 
This world can never be an ultimate reward. This world is too physical. It's too material. It's too crass. It's too tangible. No, it's too limited. <coughs> ultimate. Ultimate is the soul, is this embodied, the soul in heaven. Of course, Maimonides believes in the resurrection of the dead. It's one of the 13 principles of faith. It's going to happen after the coming of Mashiach. But he holds that that's a temporary reward. Since the body worked so hard in achieving the eternal reward, God doesn't remain indebted. God owes the body a big debt. How much sacrifice the body had to make to do the right thing while living in such a corrupt world, to make all those choices and all those sacrifices and deprive yourself of all those pleasures just to fulfill the will of God. The body deserves a tremendous reward for all that effort and refinement. So God will not, you know, will not uh, ignore the body. So the body will be resurrected. After, this will be a time after the coming of Mashiach. And then the body and soul will enjoy together. But then ultimately the body will die. And the soul will go reach heaven and go to its eternal reward. That's the opinion of Maimonides. Nachmanides. And all the Kabbalists disagree. They hold that there's three things. When the soul dies, the soul goes to its eternal reward in heaven. Then you have the coming of Mashiach, and then you have the resurrection. The resurrection will be, is the ultimate reward. When the soul will be reunited with the body, that's the ultimate reward. That's the ultimate level. Even higher, surpassing the level of the soul when the soul is in heaven. And Hasidic philosophy... The verdict is, says, states that the verdict is like Nachmanides. And the, the explanation is what we just learned in this chapter. And with this will, the Al-Tarebi explains the contradiction between the two missions, the two statements and ethics of our fathers. One contradicts the other. In the same breath, he says, one moment in this world is greater than the world to come. All the world to come put together. And then in the same breath, he says, one moment in the world to come is more pleasurable than all the pleasures in this world. And the answer is that yes, if you're speaking about the, your own pleasure, your individual pleasure, your soul's pleasure, you can't compare any physical pleasure to, to, to a spiritual pleasure. Spiritual pleasure is so much more pleasurable. It's hard for us to even, even really appreciate it. Until you experience it, you can't really appreciate it. You know, we could understand it somehow, that things that are more refined, things that are more spiritual, gives us, gives us greater pleasure. A person who develops a taste for music. All the, God bless, all the physical pleasures in the world can compare with the, with the pleasure of music, pure ecstasy. Someone who really has, finds pleasure, pleasure in music, or someone who has pleasure in doing a favor to someone, doing kindness to others. It surpasses any physical pleasure, anything in this world. Someone who develops a pleasure for understanding things, which gives a person tremendous pleasure. People dedicate their lives just to think. Aristotle grew up in a very wealthy, wealthy family. He could have been aristocratic, could have grown up like all his noblemen. He gave it all up. It meant nothing to him. Because all the pleasures of the physical world, money, power, fame, meant nothing to him in comparison to the pleasure of thinking, of figuring something out, and, and figuring out a complex issue, and understanding it and grasping it so even in this world you see pleasure that's more and how can you compare it to a spiritual pleasure a person who develops a taste for spirituality develops a taste for meditation for spirituality all the physical pleasures in the world are nothing in comparison to the pleasure of, of something spiritual so 
and whatever level of spirituality we experience in this world is nothing in comparison to the smallest level of pleasure or spirituality that the soul achieves when the soul leaves the body, when it's no longer limited by the court's physical limited body. So the smallest pleasure, people have, who have near-death experiences, all of them report that they, you know, they, they, they suddenly see this light and they were so drawn to it and it's indescribable, the pleasure is indescribable. They have to force themselves, they have to tear themselves away to come back into the body. So you can't compare. All the pleasures in this world can't even begin to come, doesn't even come close to the smallest spiritual pleasure that the soul experiences once the soul is in heaven. So in that sense, the mission is right. That one moment of pleasure in the world to come far surpasses and exceeds all the physical pleasures of this entire world. Even if you live like King Solomon and you live for a thousand years and you indulge and experience every single pleasure that this world has to offer, it wouldn't even come close to the one moment of a purely spiritual heavenly pleasure. But that's your own pleasure. But then you have God's pleasure. What gives God pleasure? What gives God pleasure is Torah mitzvah. That's His will. That's His pleasure. That's His his mind. So when a Jew studies Torah and does mitzvahs in this world, you are giving God pleasure. God's pleasure is infinite in comparison to our pleasure. All the pleasures of the soul and the, in the spiritual realm and the world to come and the heavenly realms are nothing and insignificant in comparison to one moment of pleasure in this world. Not that we gain pleasure from it, but the pleasure is God's pleasure. Because when you do Torah and mitzvah in this world, you're touching the divine essence. You're touching, you're enveloped. From head to toe, you're enveloped in God's will and God's pleasure. And your mind is one with God's mind. And God and His mind, His will, and His pleasure are inseparable, one and the same. So you are touching the infinite, you're touching the divine. So in heaven, you can't really touch the divine. In heaven, the soul benefits and enjoys a ray, a glimmer, an illumination from the divine. But the analogy is like a ray. The sun remains where the sun is, and the sun emanates from itself a ray and a glimmer. But it's not that the sun itself comes into, the, into this world. The sun remains in heaven. But we benefit from the sun. So too, the souls in heaven, they enjoy the radiance of God, the divine radiance, and the pure ecstasy and pleasure that they derive from it. But, but the, nevertheless, they cannot grasp God's essence because God is infinite. But it's in this world, through the Torah, which is compared to water, which just like water, the water itself that was all the way on high, that water itself comes and finds the lowest spot. So too, God's will and wisdom, God's essence itself, himself comes into this world, into the physical world, in the form of Torah and mitzvah. So when a Jew studies Torah, one moment of Torah and mitzvah in this world is worth more than all the spirituality and all all the heavenly realms put together, all the pleasures and ecstasies put together. So thousands of years of heavenly ecstasy can compare to one moment of putting on tefillah in this world, of giving a penny to tzedakah, saying the Shema, lighting a Shabbat candle, doing a mitzvah, any of the 613 mitzvahs. So the only time that Hashem gets pleasure is from the mitzvah. Yes, yes. That's Hashem's pleasure. That's, so then when we go into the... To a heavenly place, 
That's a temporary place. But he doesn't experience any. He can't do anything to that to make him. Right. To, this to, is to this is his will. Right, exactly. This is the world of action. That's why, in the Torah, the Torah doesn't even mention the world to come. The world to come is is a, is a is a secondary event. The spiritual realm is a secondary event. The main event is in this world, in this physical world. This is where this is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. This is the Garden of Eden. This is where God feels at home. Not in the heavens. Not in the heavens of heavens. That's a temporary event. So he doesn't mention it because he doesn't want to think about it. No, yeah, that's not primary. So a Jew who focuses on the world to come and and, and the heaven and everything that he does in this world is in order to gain a share in the world to come is really really missing missing the whole point. Is, Is missing the boat. He's missing the whole point. The whole point is not because that's a personal pleasure. I'm serving God for my own, for my own benefit, for my own, for my own pleasure. Um, but the purpose, the ultimate purpose is, not for me, the ultimate purpose is to connect with the infinite. If the soul wants to connect with the divine pleasure and the divine will and wisdom, then, then the, way to, the only way for the soul to connect with the infinite is only through Torah and mitzvot in this world. So it's only in this world that the soul could come face to face with God. So the soul comes down into this world and waits thousands of years to come down to this world and can't wait to come down to this world because it wants to encounter God. It wants to meet God. It wants to come face to face to God. And the only place you can do that is in this world. That's one of the reasons why the soul doesn't want to die. Why, why death is so traumatic. Because the soul knows the preciousness of the body, knows the preciousness of life in this world. It knows that once, once life is over after 120 years, that's it. It's all over in a certain sense. You can no longer, you're not in the marketplace anymore. You can't buy, you can't sell, you can't earn. Whatever you've earned, you've earned. It's in the bank, that's it. And you're just, you're just living off interest for the rest of, the rest of your time in heaven until Mashiach comes, till the resurrection. But the place to earn, to risk, to invest, the place to accomplish, to achieve, to change, that opportunity is lost forever. Unless you're reborn, unless you come down the, uh, you're re, in a reincarnation. But for the soul, it's only when the soul is in this world, they really have, this is the opportunity to change, to accomplish to do mitzvot. So every moment that we have, every day that we have, we have to uh, grab the opportunity, use the opportunity. We have such a special opportunity. So the Jew looks at this world as a place of opportunity. We don't look at this world as a dark place. All other religions look at this world as, you know, you were born in sin and only, only um, rescuers will, will all go to heaven and we'll have faith and we'll all be rescued to heaven and and this world is a maya, is an, is an illusion. That's not the Jewish perspective. The Jewish perspective is this world is a Garden of Eden. This world is a world full of opportunity. It seems like a lot of the crazy like, religious fanatics almost think that it's all like, the world. Right, right. So much so, right, that, that they, they de-emphasize this world. They don't mind to die. Um, you know, in Judaism, it's just the opposite. You have to violate all 613 mitzvot, with the exception of the three cardinal uh, to save a life and to um, you know, murder and adultery and idolatry with those three exceptions other than those three exceptions a Jew has to violate all mitzvot just to sustain life in this world even another moment of life because life in this world is where it's at is what it's all about the holiness the sanctity of life in this world 
The opportunity that we have in this world is something that the soul will never have again. One moment in this world and you can turn your whole life around. One split second you can do teshuva and turn your whole life around. You can change. Once you die, once you're in heaven, it's all, it's all over. It's too late. Whatever you have in your baggage, whatever you have in your bags, that's it. Whatever you packed, that's all you have. Nothing more, nothing less. Unless the children, your children could increase for you. Your children could add. When they do a mitzvah, it's like the bank account keeps on increasing. You get nachas. <laughs> what? Investment, right. That's your investment. Right. There's, no, there's no tshuva in that. In the world to come, there's no tshuva. It's too late. In heaven. Only in this world. It's too late. Whatever you are, you are. It's, you're stuck. Your bags are packed. You, tra- you, left, you left the game already. You're, you're, out, you're out of the business. Your time to earn, your time to risk, your time to invest, your time to lose and to make up. It's all now. Now. Time is now. This is a tremendous opportunity. That's why Judaism looks at this world as a marketplace. A tremendous opportunity. It's not... It, it's a time where you can invest. This is the time, the, the 80, 90, 120 years that God gives us. Every moment, every day is precious. This is the time that we can, you can handle and you can rake it in. You can invest and you can do mitzvot and mitzvot. And a day should not go by without you doing another mitzvah. Because that mitzvah that you have is forever, is eternal. That's the baggage that you take with you. Because it's only the physical in this world. This is where it's at. This is what it's all about. So is that why you think people that do a lot of mitzvahs maybe death is easier because they feel like they've done what they had to do in this life and now they can do something more? On the other hand, we don't, we don't, a Jew wants to live. You know, I could do more, I could do more mitzvahs. We know, you know, so the emphasis is not the world to come. The world to come is not exciting for us. <laughs> the life after death is not exciting for us. How can it compare with life in this world? It's only life in this world they have the opportunity to touch the essence of God. You don't have that opportunity in heaven. Why would you give that up? That's why a Jew wants Mashiach to come. Mashiach will come, there will be, there will be no more dying, no more death. And, and to be immediately followed by the resurrection. All those souls that already died will be resurrected, will come back and come to the ultimate reward, which is body and soul in this world, this physical world. This is something Alter Rebbe will discuss at great length later in the, in the 30s, in later chapters, how, how is it possible that this physical world, which is so cynical and jaded and dark and, and uh, coarse, and the antithesis of anything godly and spiritual we find. People are so selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed. And, so, and this physical world could be the ultimate the ultimate place, the ultimate environment that God calls the Garden of Eden. God says, this is where I feel at home. This is where the soul can't wait thousands of years to come back to. This is going to be the ultimate reward. When the more you probe, the deeper you probe the realities of this world as it is today, you're almost repulsed and disgusted by the, the, the lies, how it's all, everything is just one big lie and so false. What a false world. There isn't a single aspect of this world that isn't false. You know, my father-in-law was in the newspaper business. He used to say, uh, never trust anything it says in the newspaper. Because even the date is a lie, because it was published yesterday. <laughs> so this is a world of lies. It's smoke and mirrors. Everything is smoke and mirrors, from the government, the corporations, the business. I mean, to find a little honesty and integrity in this world, you have to search with <laughs> torchlights. 
And the more, you, the more you learn about the world, the more you realize how false it is. So this physical world, this is the environment, this is the place that God says that is my essence will be revealed. This is the place where God says I feel at home. This is the Garden of Eden. This is the place where the holies and the holy of holies is found in this physical world. With the Torahs and the mitzvot and the Jewish people. This is where it's at. The answer is you better believe it. This is where it's at. But that's something you're going to elaborate on as you'll explain it in greater depth, in great depth in the 30s. This is where we choose. What? Is it where we choose? This is the exciting, this is real. This is the only place where it's real. In Tillin, that's what God says to Mormon and Melody. He wants to know when he's going to die and he says, you know, let it be after Shabbos. And God said, I don't remember how it's Yes, yes. One day or one hour is more precious to me in, in this world. Right, right. So that's coming from right. God Himself. Right, exactly. For this reason, it has been said, one hour of repentance and good deeds <coughs> in this world is better than the whole life of the world to come. For the reward in the world to come consists of enjoying the radiance of the divine presence. It is the pleasure derived from comprehension of godliness. Now, no created being, even the spiritual being of the higher realms, such as angels or souls, can comprehend any more than a glimmer of divine light, for which reason the reward of the souls in the world to come is referred to as the radiance of divine presence, since it is no more than a remote gleam of divine light. So the analogy is like the sun. The sun remains in heaven, and of course the sun illuminates us. We get a ray, a glimmer. But the sun doesn't come down to this world. The sun remains in its own place. And it sends off a little ray, a little glimmer, which is nothing in comparison to the sun. So too, God emanates from himself a radiance, a ray, a glimmer, a light. So the, the souls in heaven, the highest levels of heaven, Ganeden Elyon, the highest levels of Ganeden, the highest pleasure, the most ecstatic pleasure, is only from a glimmer, a ray of a glimmer of a glimmer of God. But they can't grasp the essence of God. But as for the essence and glory of the Holy One, blessed be He, no thought can apprehend Him at all. Not only physical thought, even, even spiritual thought, even angelic thought, even the soul after and afterlife. No thought can possibly grasp God, because every thought, even spiritual thought, is finite. Meditation, it's all finite. And you cannot grasp something that's infinite. If you don't have it inside of you, you don't have the capacity, you can't relate to something you don't have inside of you. We don't have infinite. We're not infinite. God is not spiritual. God is not physical. God is undefined. God is infinite. So since we are not infinite, we're not divine, we don't have the tools. We don't have what it takes to grasp the infinite. So the essence of God eludes us. Only when it apprehends and clothes itself in Torah and its mitzvah does it grasp and clothe itself in God himself. When the soul clothes itself, puts on the clothes of Torah and mitzvah, then acts and fulfills the mitzvot with your hands and with your feet and with your limbs and speaks the words of Torah and prays and thinks the, the, the uh, words of Torah and understands Torah then what are you grasping? You're grasping the essence of God. Because when you grasp that fillet, when you grasp that palace, when you put that penny into the akka, when the woman lights the candle you are grasping the essence of God because God and His will are one and are inseparable. 
And it's like water, as he explained earlier. The very same water that was above comes below. So it's God's very same Torah, His own Torah. The way He learns Torah. His own will, His own wisdom. That itself comes down in when you hold that Torah scroll. And you read from that Torah scroll, the physical letters written in the parchment, you are grasping the very essence of God. As God is on His own. So you're touching the essence of God. You can grasp God. So God enabled us. He gave us 613 ways to grasp. The Torah and the Holy One, blessed be He, are one and the same. Hence the superiority of Torah and mitzvot in this world over the life of the world to come. In the world to come, the soul grasps only a glimmer of godliness. In this world, through Torah and mitzvot, it is united with Hashem Himself. For although the Torah has been clothed in lowly material things, and it is only these material things that man's intellect grasps, studying Torah, not the essence of Hashem's will and wisdom. So though we cannot grasp the essence of God's will and wisdom because the human mind and even the soul's mind is simply too finite and cannot grasp something that's infinite and God's will and wisdom are infinite, but all we grasp is the physical understanding of the Torah, the physical laws of the Torah, the physical mitzvot of the Torah, yet nevertheless... It is by way of illustration, like one who embraces a king. There is no difference in the degree of his closeness and attachment to the king, whether he embraces him when the king is wearing one robe or many robes, since the king's body is in them. So when you grasp someone, you love someone, so you grasp, you hug them. Who are you hugging? You're hugging his skin, his flesh. You're hugging him. You can't grab him, so you grab, you grab his body. But you're grabbing his body is just a tool. You're grabbing his body. What you're really hugging is him. Or when he hugs you. It's what's inside. So does it matter if the person is wearing one suit or two suits or three suits? It's not, it's not the body. It's not the suit. It's, it's the person. You're hugging. You're expressing your love and your closeness to the person. So you're hugging the person. And the same is with Hashem. It's Hashem that's inside the Torah. It's inside the mitzvah. You're touching the divine essence. So when you're embracing the mitzvah and you're embracing the Torah, you're embracing Hashem Himself. But the only way that you can embrace Hashem, you can't embrace Hashem because we're finite and Hashem is infinite. But the only way for us to embrace Hashem, to hug Hashem, to embrace Hashem, be embraced by Hashem, is by fulfilling the 613 mitzvahs, by doing the mitzvah, thinking the mitzvah, speaking the mitzvah, and acting the mitzvah, thinking the Torah and being fully engaged in the Torah and the heart being fully engaged in the mitzvah and expressing ourselves through Torah mitzvot you are hugging Hashem you're being hugged by Hashem by the essence of Hashem similarly similarly when a Jew embraces Hashem's wisdom in Torah study the fact that his wisdom is clothed in material robes, robes is irrelevant another point understood from this analogy in the study of Torah man is also embraced enveloped and encompassed by Hashem's wisdom that the Torah contains, as will be explained further in chapter 5. As the Alter Rebbe continues, similarly, when the king embraces one with his arm, though it be dressed in his robe, to illustrate that Torah is analogous to a royal embrace, the Alter Rebbe quotes, as it is written, His, Hashem's right hand, embraces me, which refers to Torah, called the right hand because Torah was given by Hashem's right hand. The Torah is related to the attribute of Chesed, kindness, and water. As explained in the Kabbalah, the right hand represents both chesed and water, and, as said earlier, Torah is compared to water. 
and the left hand represents Gavura, severity and fire. And the verse states that Hashem's right hand embraces me. The intention is that Hashem's embraces is that Hashem embraces and envelops the soul through Torah, Hashem's right hand. Thus, the bond that Torah study creates between the soul and Hashem is twofold. The soul embraces Hashem and is embraced by Hashem. In this, Torah study is superior to other mitzvah, as discussed in the following chapter. So if you will, the mitzvot are God's sense of touch. We know the Torah speaks in reference to God, the eyes of God, the ears of God, never the touch of God. Nowhere in the Torah does the Torah speak of God's sense of touch. So Maimonides explains that the sense of touch is so materialistic that you can't even use it as an analogy to God. But nevertheless, the mitzvot, in a certain sense, are God's sense of touch. Because when the mitzvah comes into this world, the mitzvot are physical. And they embody God's will and God's wisdom. Just like the letters of the Torah, the written Torah embodies God's wisdom, the physical letters written on the parchment. They are divine, they are holy. So when you do a mitzvah, it's like God is hugging you. God is touching you. We know a person needs how powerful the sense of touch is. A person needs, from when we're born, a person needs a sense of touch. Babies who are born without parents die, wither away. If no one comes and hugs them and touches them, they just wither away and die. Unfortunately, in orphanages, people volunteer just to come, just to hug the baby every day, just to hold the baby. Because a baby doesn't have that physical warmth, that physical touch just withers away and dies. A person needs that physical touch. A person grows older and they get married and it's the same thing. You give and you get and a person needs that constant, constant physical, physical... It's not enough to love abstractly, but a person needs that physical touch. And God's love for us in the marriage between the Jewish people and God, God is embracing us also. He's hugging us and He's embracing us. What's God's sense of touch? the physical when you're standing with the talus wrapped around in the talus and you're wrapped around in the tefillah God is touching you God is embracing you you feel that hug and like he said earlier from head to toe you're enveloped you're surrounded with a divine enveloped and wrapped in the divine essence and divine infinite infinite light and when you do so when a Jew studies Torah you embrace God you're hugging God you're embracing God because you want to get close to God God is hugging you and embracing you and bringing them, bringing them close to you. And that's the analogy he learned earlier. He said he compared it to a, uh, a slingshot. He says, you're bound up in God. Tzurut is like a slingshot. You put a stone and it goes a very far distance. So when you do a physical mitzvah in this world, it's so tiny, such a tiny act, a deed, a small little deed, a physical, practical, doable, simple act. Yet it takes you so far. It's like a slingshot that you you shoot it out and it goes so far because the effect of this mitzvah is so far-reaching. It's a simple mitzvah, but it's divine. You embrace the essence of God and the essence of God embraces you. You become totally enveloped. Your whole being, your whole soul, all 613 parts of your soul, 248 uh, limbs and 365 veins, and all 613 aspects of your soul, and the mind, and the heart, and the thought, speech, and action, every part of your soul, 
becomes fully enwrapped and enveloped and embraced in, 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 in the beer hug with God. With God. That's what mitzvah is all about. That's the power of Torah and mitzvah. And again, it's like a marriage or relationship which is not just abstract. That's the sign of marriage. It's not platonic. It's not abstract. Marriage is a total relationship. And it's, and it's not just mental. It's not just emotional. It's not just spiritual. It's every fiber of your being, every bone in your body, material and spiritual, body and soul. And that's mitzvah. Torah and mitzvah engage the whole person. Engage the mind, the heart, body and soul and down to the to the small I mean I mean in the in the, in the physical sense in the literal sense it's, it's everything it's uh, the act of intimacy is a total relationship it involves every fiber of your being it involves every bone in your body you're totally focused and present concentrated, not 99.9%, 100%. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.